This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, September 15th. I'm Margaret Brennan from the nation's capital, and this is Face the Nation. A terror attack at a Saudi oil processing facility disrupts the world's oil production, likely to cause a spike in gas prices. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo blames Iran for the attack. Will that make tense relations even worse? The House will be in order. Congress returns from its summer recess with dozens more Democrats in the House now backing an impeachment inquiry. Will cautious House leaders change course? If we have to go there, we'll have to go there. The Trump administration scores a victory in the courts with its deportation policy. What will the impact be? We'll talk with two key Democrats in the House, Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and freshman Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Her criticism of Israel has caused dissension in her own party and drawn attacks from President Trump. Ken Cuccinelli, the acting head of the agency that administers the Trump administration's immigration system, will also be here. Plus, we sat down with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice to get her thoughts on Mr. Trump's worldview and divisiveness in the country today. It's time to stop labeling each other and using explosive terms like, she's a racist, he's a racist. When you say that, that's meant to stop the conversation. And we need to have a conversation. We'll also talk with U.N. Ambassador during the Obama administration, Samantha Power. And as CBS News kicks off the special network series, Eye on Earth, we'll take a look at our changing climate. A new survey out this morning shows that most Americans think climate change is serious and needs to be addressed now. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation from our studio on the roof of the Jones Day Law Firm here on Capitol Hill, where we'll be broadcasting for the next few weeks while our Washington studio gets some adjustments. We begin this morning with the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, California's Adam Schiff. Good morning. Good to have you here, Chairman. Good morning. Uh, we saw this attack uh, that Secretary of State Pompeo says was a terror attack carried out by Iran in Saudi Arabia. What does U.S. intelligence show? Well, I have not uh, had the briefing yet on whether this is directly attributable to Iran, but uh, I think it's safe to say that the Houthis don't have the capability to do a strike like this without Iranian assistance. So Iranian know-how, Iranian technology, uh, I think, was certainly involved, whether the Iranians directly engaged in this or through the Houthi proxies uh, has yet to be seen. But I think it underscores uh, just what we really, frankly, came to expect from this unending war in Yemen, uh, that it would escalate tensions in the region, uh, but also our withdrawal from the JCPOA has led Iran to engage... The nuclear deal with Iran. Exactly. Has led Iran to engage in these escalatory tactics to drive us uh, apart from our allies, but also to increase Iranian leverage to uh, try to bring about an end to sanctions. Uh, Do you think the president should withdraw his offer to sit down and begin talks with Iran? I think the president should engage in diplomacy with Iran. I think it's the only way out of this situation. Uh, I don't think, frankly, the president should have withdrawn from a nuclear deal that Iran was complying with. But we need to work with our allies to secure the Strait of Hormuz, to secure critical infrastructure in the region. But we do need to get back to diplomacy. Uh, and there are openings to do so. There are voices within Iran, unusual voices, including some arch conservatives suggesting it's time to start talking with the United States again. The administration should seize that opportunity. We also heard from the White House yesterday that they confirmed Hamza bin Laden, the son of Osama bin Laden, was killed in Afghanistan, Pakistan area. 
this was originally reported back in July. You've been briefed. What can you tell us? Well, he, he has been killed. Uh, good riddance. I think this is someone uh, of great symbolic value to Al Qaeda. Uh, How someone, was he killed? Uh, I can't go into the specifics more than what the White House has disclosed, uh, but it shows uh, they have acknowledged that this was in the AFPAC region. It shows the continuing importance of that region uh, to Al Qaeda. It, it also shows the importance of the region to us in terms of our security that we need to maintain. Uh, some footprint or some guarantee that al-Qaeda won't resurge in the area. Um, but he was not, I think, a leader, current leader of al-Qaeda in an mm -hmm. operational sense. Uh, so I think if his name wasn't bin Laden, uh, it wouldn't have had the same impact. But nonetheless, uh, an important uh, step in terms of taking more of the leadership of al-Qaeda off the battlefield. Should the president continue negotiating with the Taliban? The president should. I don't think the negotiation should have been called off because of the ill-planned, ill-prepared uh, summit and it falling apart. Uh, at the end of the day, there's only going to be one way to resolve the conflict in Afghanistan. That's through negotiation. Uh, but we should uh, secure more than Taliban promises uh, in that negotiation in exchange for a drawdown of American troops. We have to insist on at least a partial ceasefire so that we can mm -hmm. see that the Taliban are both uh, willing, but also able to control their own elements. I want to ask you about some work you're doing here at home, which was you issued a subpoena on Friday for the acting director of intelligence, uh, alleging he's withholding a whistleblower disclosure, possibly to protect President Trump. That's a pretty significant allegation here. We're putting up a quote on the screen from you. Have you gotten a response to this letter? We've gotten a response, and the uh, director has said essentially that he is answering to a higher authority uh, and refusing to turn over the whistleblower complaint. Um, this is deeply troubling. Um, no Just director, ignoring the subpoena. Uh, well, at this point, yes. Uh, ignoring the subpoena, ignoring our uh, request. Um, no DNI, no director of national intelligence, has ever refused to turn over a whistleblower complaint. And here, Margaret... Um, the significance is the inspector general found this complaint to be urgent, found it to be credible. That is, they did some preliminary investigation, found the whistleblower to be credible. That suggests corroboration. Uh, and that it involved serious or flagrant wrongdoing. Uh, and according to the director of national intelligence, the reason he's not acting to provide it, even though the statute mandates that he do so, is because he is being instructed not to. Now, this involved a higher authority, someone above the DNI. Well, there are only a few people yeah. above the DNI. Uh, so we're concerned this area, this involves uh, wrongdoing that's under investigation by our committee, uh, and we're going to do everything necessary to make sure that whistleblower is not allowed to provide the complaint to us, but can come directly to Congress, which the director is also prohibiting at this point. So you don't know, but you suspect the president has some role or the executive branch here. Can you can you tell us what the subject was of the whistleblower complaint? Uh, I can't go into the contents, but I can tell you that at least according to the director of national intelligence, this involves an issue of privileged communications. Now that means it's a pretty narrow group of people that it could apply to that are both above the DNI in authority and also involve privileged communications. So um, I, I think it's fair to assume this involves either the president or people around him or both. Um, but at the end of the day, if mm -hmm. the director of national intelligence is going to undermine the whistleblower protections, uh, it means that people are going to end up taking the law into their own hands uh, and going directly to the press instead of the mechanism that Congress set to protect classified information. Uh, and that mm -hmm. gravely threatens both our national security as well as uh, a system that encourages people to expose wrongdoing. You're in leadership. Um, there seems to be confusion within the Democratic Party about whether or not there is actually an impeachment inquiry underway. Can you clarify? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we're doing an investigation that will ultimately determine whether the president should be impeached. Now, there are people... So there is an inquiry underway? There's certainly an investigation under, underway. And now, that, uh, this is about more than just message. There are some of our members who are ready to vote to impeach and remove the president tomorrow. And there are some who believe... Uh, that we should not impeach him because it will be a failed exercise in the Senate. But the vast majority of our caucus, including our leadership, is of the view that we should do the investigation before we determine whether the president should be impeached. That's the category that I fit in, and that's the work that we're doing. And that's all that's required in court to get access to the grand jury ma material we need to do our jobs. We have to leave it there. 
Congressman, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, one Democrat who has called for the president to be impeached and did so early on was Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. She came to the United States as a refugee, and she is the first Somali American to be elected to Congress. As part of the so-called squad, she's drawn a considerable amount of attention for her progressive and sometimes controversial views. And we welcome her here to the broadcast. Congresswoman, it's good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Uh, you heard what uh, Chairman Schiff said. We know more than half of the Democratic caucus supports impeachment now. You're among them. Um, do you think Speaker Pelosi is being too hesitant? <laughs> Well, what I've always said was that it wasn't if we were going to impeach, it's when we were going to impeach. And I think it is um, okay for some people to have hesitations, for other people to uh, catch up um, to where some of us have been uh, for a really long time. And I think with um, Chairman Natler, he understands that you know we have a constitutional duty um, and we must exercise that constitutional duty. Do you think, though, because of the sheer numbers now, I think we're 136 Democrats who support an impeachment mm-hmm. inquiry at least, are we at a tipping point where those decisions need to be made? Yes, and the decisions are being made. Uh, this is why they uh, took the vote to begin the investigation, mm-hmm. uh, and I really feel confident that um, they are in the process of getting everybody else who is still lagging uh, to come along. Now, we said in the introduction, you're controversial. The Republican National Committee has released a video of you. um, And I want to read you just some of it. Um, You're comparing migrant shelters um, to dungeons used about 400 years ago in Ghana that you recently visited. uh, And you toured those caves in Ghana recently. It's getting a lot of attention. Uh, Did you mean, when you were talking there, to compare U.S. border agents to slave traders? So I'm only controversial because people seem to want to controversy. What I talked about um, at our panel that was the plight of uh, black immigrants was about the experience I was having as I went through the dungeons, there were stories that were being told. And I talked about how at that moment I had an image of uh, what's happening in Libya mm-hmm. um, as, as people as are being um, sold. We've, we've all seen that video, that auction of somebody being sold for $400. And then I talked about the separation stories that he told about how families were being torn apart, how children were being um, separated from their parents, how... Uh, husband and wife would be forcefully uh, separated. And I said that kind of reminded me of what was happening at our border here. But you didn't mean it as an attack on U.S. border agents. Absolutely not. I think this is this is always the point, right? Um, there is always uh, uh, an implied intent to every conversation I have. And if you listen to the video, one comparison of what the dungeons looked like and people being sold was to what's happening in North Africa. And the other one was of family separations. And, of course, we obviously have uh, a crisis here with our family separation uh, policies. You feel very passionately about immigration. You came to this country as a refugee. I did. Um, The Trump administration had a victory in the courts this week Mm -hmm. because, uh, at least temporarily, they're upholding uh, the ability of the administration to put into place new restrictions Mm -hmm. on the ability to claim asylum here. I I believe um, that decision is uh, morally and legally wrong. Uh, Seeking asylum is a legal right that people have, uh, and we know that the Supreme Court um, has been wrong before. Um, they've been wrong in the equal but separation doctrine decision. They've been wrong in the Dred Scott uh, decision. And so what we now have an opportunity to do as legislators is make sure that we are creating immigration policy that is humane and just. Well, the Trump administration would say they have to go and implement these regulations, that their hands are being tied because Congress just isn't doing its job. All right. We certainly in the House have been doing our job since the first day we got there. In, so do asylum uh, rights, as you argue, need to be more specifically laid out? Are you working on something like that? Yeah, we are trying to make sure that we fix our broken immigration system. I mean, people have to understand that the 
um, immigration crisis that we have is one that we could avoid. Uh, and many of the policies that we've been advocating for, many that are currently sitting at the doorsteps um, of Mitch McConnell, uh, will create uh, a positive impact on how our immigration system is carried out. This was the anniversary this week, the 18th, of the 9-11 attacks on our country. Um, and at a ground zero, resem- uh, well, remembrance ceremony, I'll call it, uh, the son of one of the victims stood up and specifically called out language you had used in the past that he characterized as not respectful when referring to the 3,000 people mm-hmm. who were killed by al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. You said some people did something, and he put it right there on his Mm -hmm. T-shirt. Do you understand why people found that offensive? Mm. I mean, so... 9-11 9-11 was an attack on all Americans. It was an attack on all of us. And I certainly could not uh, understand the weight of the pain that the victims um, of the, the families of 9-11 um, must feel. Uh, but I think it is really important for us to make sure that we are not um, forgetting right the aftermath of what happened after 9-11. Many Americans found themselves now Um, having their civil rights uh, stripped from them. Uh, And so what I was speaking to was the fact that as a Muslim, Mm -hmm. um, not only was I suffering as an American who was attacked on that day, but the next day I woke up as my fellow Americans were now treating me as suspect. Do Do you feel like it's been tough for you here in Washington to change your rhetoric, to, to be less of an activist and try to be a legislator, that, that sometimes the language you use has gotten in your own way. I certainly don't think that. Um, you know, when we were celebrating um, a few nights ago, I talked about how some people would say, Ilhan, you should speak a certain way. Ilhan, you should uh, do something a certain way. And I think that's contradictory really to uh, the purpose of, of my existence in this space. I believe that my constituents um, sent me to make sure that I was bringing in a conversation that others weren't having, that I was speaking for people who felt voiceless for a long time. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that it's a new Congress. It's a diverse Congress. And we're not only diverse in our race or ethnicity or religion, Mm -hmm. but we are also diverse in our perspective, in our pain, in our struggles, um, and in the hopes and dreams that we have uh, and the kind of America that we want to shape for all of us. You were specifically banned by the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, from visiting that country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he faces a very tough election uh, in the next few days. Um, if he doesn't win, are you going to try to go back and, and do you stand by your call for a boycott of Israel? I certainly hope uh, that the people of Israel make a different decision. Um, And my hope is that they recognize that his existence, his policies, um, his rhetoric really uh, is contradictory to the peace that we are all hoping that that region receives and receives soon. Um, Just right now, if you look at the annexation that's taking place, um, for many of us in Congress, there has been a long-standing support for a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this annexation now um, is going to make sure that that peace process uh, does not happen and we will not get to a two-state solution. I think Mm -hmm. what is really important is for people to understand that you have to give people the opportunity uh, to seek the kind of justice they want in a peaceful way. And I think the opportunity to boycott, divest, sanction um, is the kind of pressure that leads to that peaceful uh, process. Congresswoman? Thank you for coming here to Face the Nation. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back in one minute with the administration's point person on legal immigration. Stay with us. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support 
offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back now with the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS, Ken Cuccinelli. His agency is part of Homeland Security, and it manages the processing of visas, asylum claims, and applications for citizenship. Good morning. Good to be with you, Mark. You were obviously directly impacted at your agency by the Supreme Court decision to Absolutely. uphold the ability to enforce these new restrictions on being able to claim asylum. What is the practical impact on the ground, and when will it be felt? So uh, it's already being felt. Uh, it, isn't, it wasn't from zero to 100 as soon as the Supreme Court ruled. We didn't know their timing. Uh, but I can tell you that I spoke with Mark Morgan and Matt Albans, the head of the other two immigration agencies, uh, on Friday. And we will be working closely with the Department of Justice where the immigration judges sit. And um, we're sp- ramping this up as quickly as we can logistically. We'll, we'll do it in the places where we have the logistics in place fastest first and then move it all the way across the border. But this will be measured in days, not weeks. So to explain, this restricts the ability of people to claim asylum if they haven't first tried to claim asylum and been denied in a country they were passing through through en route to the United States. But claiming asylum is a legal channel of asylum, so of trying to immigrate. So if you're cutting off that legal channel, aren't you just going to push people towards illegal immigration? Well, most of the people coming in that are claiming asylum on the southern border are coming in illegally already. But if they're crossing illegally but still declaring asylum, they're going through the legal channel if they're declaring themselves to a border patrol officer. Right. And so we have different rules in different places. I don't think a lot of people realize this, but the northern border, uh, we have an agreement with Canada where you can claim asylum in either Canada or the United States, but not both under any circumstances. It's actually a more restrictive arrangement than we have now on the southern border. So uh, the the circumstances that we face on our southern border are still crisis circumstances, and uh, we have a 335,000 asylum case backlog, which I take very seriously, and it has creeped up while I've been here. Um, despite us throwing more and more resources at trying to drive it down, there are legitimate asylum claims in there. Mm -hmm. Some of them have been waiting over two years, and we take very seriously the need to get to those people. Unfortunately, this system is clogged up with a lot of fraudulent claims. But, as you just said, sometimes there are very legitimate claims of asylum, fear for your life. And that is where the controversy is, not just around the legality, but the morality of it. I mean, Ronald Reagan talked about this country as a shining city on the hill, and you were building a big moat around it. Well, that's not how we view it, obviously. But, um, I mean, at the same time, my agency is, uh, you know, creating more citizens than you've seen in years. We have with a five-year high last year, and we'll break that again this year. But this so, is tens of thousands yes, of people who descri- will not be able to claim okay, asylum. But you just described us as trying to build a moat around it. I'm pointing out that in the legal process, we're moving along at a good clip. We have a crisis at the southern border, and this is just one of the many responses we've had. The president has been very clear about the need to be aggressive on the border, and that's exactly what we're doing. So are you essentially arguing that this is going to be a deterrent, where people just won't even try to come? Because uh, asi- will, claiming asylum be. is illegal. Yes, Margaret, I understand, and your point is an excellent one. It will be a deterrent for some people, um, particularly those who were going to be coming and claiming what are clearly false asylum claims. People, And remember, asylum is about safety. We do want people right. to be safe. Um, the, and the reality is America is the most generous country in the world on this front. But we have to deal with the crisis we're facing down there. This will be a deterrent to some coming who are making particularly false claims. Very quickly on that note, the Bahamas was just slammed with a horrific hurricane. Dorian, yes. Why change it and make it harder for people to flee to this country this past Monday by now requiring visas? There's a lot of good reasons people wouldn't have their paperwork. 
Uh, well, CBP has actually extended itself out into the Bahamas, which they I don't ever remember them doing before. We're actually making this a lot more accommodationist. So realize that the northern two islands were hit. Grand Bahama has electricity and the basics back. The Bahamas is a perfectly legitimate country capable of taking care of their own. We rushed resources in, mm -hmm. whether it was from USAID or the Coast Guard, who were downright heroic in there. Mm -hmm. And Border Patrol assets were moved in there as well to make hundreds of saves. I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm appreciate everything you're saying. I'm running out of time. I'm controlled, so i got to <laughs> leave it there. Today is the 56th anniversary of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, which killed four young girls, including a friend of former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, who was an eight-year-old at the time. Up next, we will speak with her about race as well as the changing role of the United States. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Earlier, we sat down with President George W. Bush's Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. She now teaches at Stanford University and is the co-author of a new book, To Build a Better World, Choices to End the Cold War and Create a Global Commonwealth. President Trump represents a very different kind of foreign policy for the Republican Party. It's more isolationist than Republicans like yourself have been in the past. Do you think that's more reflective of where the party is now? I don't know where the party is, but I certainly believe that uh, President Trump is speaking to something that's in the country. Uh, if you think back to the interview that President Barack Obama did uh, with Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic just before he left office, there are really a lot of echoes of what you hear with uh, President Trump. He talked about allies being kind of free riders. There was a sort of anger and frustration uh, sounding through <clears throat> about allies and what they do. And so this has been coming for some time, um, probably a little bit of exhaustion with uh, the wars and uh, terrorism and vigilance. But the fact is uh, the American people have kind of two impulses simultaneously. One is we're tired of those burdens of leadership. Can't somebody else do it? You hear that in echoed by President Trump and earlier by President Obama. But they also don't want to see Syrian babies choking on uh, nerve gas. They don't want to see people beheaded on TV, as ISIS was doing. They don't want to see Vladimir Putin laying waste to his neighbors uh, or Venezuelans uh, starving because they have a bad government. And so. What the president has to do is to activate the part of America that wants to continue to lead. And uh, sometimes I think you get that from this administration. Is there an identity that defines Republican foreign policy now? I don't know if there's an identity that defines uh, foreign policy in either party. The United States is going through a transformative period in which we are leaving uh, one era, uh, the era in which uh, the United States emerged uh, really the sole superpower after the end of the Cold War. Then there was a period of uh, having to deal with uh, terrorism mm -hmm. and uh, the attacks uh, that we had the anniversary of uh, on uh, September 11th. 
Now we're facing all of these new challenges. What do you do about cybersecurity? Uh, what do you do about ungoverned spaces where terrorists train, uh, but where you can't go in uh, directly? What do you do about the rise of great powers uh, like China? What do you do about the efforts of a declining power like Russia to disrupt the international system? The problems are different. And I think we're going to have to come to a new consensus about what really principles are going to guide American foreign policy. I hope that there will be some echoes of the old principles, that America is going to be involved, that without the United States, the world is a more chaotic place. I hope that those principles will uh, involve patience. In the book, To Build a Better World, you say you wrote it because you think the world is drifting towards another systemic crisis. Is this a warning? I hope it's a bit of a wake-up call. When we see uh, the rise of what uh, we've called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, populism, that uh, says, don't believe in those institutions. Uh, those institutions, you go around them directly to the people. Well, there's some dangers in that. When you see the rise of what I'll call nativism, I, I think uh, saying it's nationalism, for Americans, nationalism is not a bad thing. It's not bad to be... Uh, proud of, patriotic toward your country. Nativism, though, pits you against them. When you see isolationism, when you see protectionism growing, uh, the whole idea that the international economy is better if people trade, uh, if countries trade freely, uh, when you see that under attack, I do think we're drifting toward a, a systemic crisis. But those four things you just outlined sound a lot like what defines Trumpism. But it's not just what defines uh, some of the president's policies, America First, for instance. It defines a lot of what you're hearing across the world. It defines what you're hearing in Great Britain with Brexit. It defines what you hear from the Five Star Movement in Italy. It defines what you hear in Brazil with, uh, with Bolsonaro. So the question is, why are we getting this response? And elites can't sit back and say, oh, you're just wrong. Mm -hmm. There has to be some self-evaluation of how late-stage capitalism is dealing with some of the new challenges. Do you think Republicans are doing enough to push back against those four horsemen? Well, I do think that you see people pushing back uh, on very specific circumstances. Now, let's be fair. When it comes to some foreign policy issues that I was dealing with uh, a decade ago, you have to give the administration credit for having taken them on. North Korea. Mm -hmm. Nobody's been able to solve the North Korean problem. I don't have a problem with how they're going about that. I would say that on Iran, they're pushing back correctly on an Iranian regime that is the most dangerous and disruptive regime in the Middle East. Should President Trump meet with President Rouhani? I have no problem with negotiating with the Iranians, but uh, you have to do it when the conditions are right. When you have a negotiation that looks like the Taliban is not going to even recognize the legitimate democratically elected government of Afghanistan, not going to recognize the Constitution, now you have to step back and say, is this time really to negotiate? <clears throat> when you're negotiating from a, a position of strength, mm -hmm. um, as I think we would be with the Iranians or with the North Koreans because the sanctions have weakened those economies, uh, that's, that's fine. When your partner or your adversary thinks that they have the upper hand, which I think the Taliban thinks, because they think we want to get out so badly we'll, we'll take anything, then I think you have to stop and say this may not be the time to negotiate. Do you think that the president needs to be taking more care on those issues when he discusses race and when he discusses immigrants? I do, and I've said I think that, uh, particularly from the White House, you need language uh, that recognizes how raw race is as a factor in America. I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. All right, I understand um, race and racism and the like. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, Margaret, I think that uh, we could all be better in the way that we deal with this very raw nerve, which is race. Um, I think it's time to stop labeling each other and using explosive terms like she's a racist, he's a racist. That, that stops the conversation. Right? When you say that, that's meant to stop the conversation. And we need to have a conversation. We also need um, to, and I say this very often to my students, um, you know, identity is a wonderful and marvelous thing. I am tremendously proud of my ancestors, 
who survived the horrors of slavery uh, came out of it and by the time of my grandfather were being college educated. I'm tremendously proud of that legacy. But I also know that identity has to be something that you don't use against others. Mm -hmm. And so to the degree that we are breaking ourselves into ever smaller uh, groups with ever larger senses of grievance and uh, ever uh, different narratives, um, I don't think anybody is doing very well uh, at helping us to navigate this extraordinarily difficult minefield of race. Our full conversation with Secretary Rice is on our website, facethenation.com. We'll be right back with another former diplomat, President Obama's United Nations Ambassador, Samantha Power. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We're back now with former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. She has a new memoir out. It's called The Education of an Idealist. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Does being an idealist survive working in the White House? Definitely, but you do have to learn how to prosecute your ideals. So the story I tell is not one of going in naive about how easy it will be to promote human rights uh, from Washington, but I went in knowing it would be hard and then learned how to build coalitions, learned how to work with other countries to uh, fight things like the Ebola epidemic or get political prisoners out of jail. But you do have to keep learning and be self-critical as you go, and that's the story I tell. Secretary Rice, you heard her just there lay out a number of things she said were very similar between President Trump and President Obama in terms of responding to this uh, strong reaction against military intervention, this idea that you know the system needs to be completely changed and that allies aren't shouldering more of the burden. Do you see those same similarities? We could not be more different, in fact. Um, it's true that in the wake of the disastrous invasion of Iraq and the overstretch and the militarization of our foreign policy after 9-11 generally, uh, that there is a fatigue in the country. That part I agree with. But there's a major difference between the current approach of um, attacking our democratic institutions at home, undermining our ability to lead internationally, attacking our allies, cozying up to abusive regimes, um, alienating everybody. So if you need them in the face of a crisis, it's going to be very hard uh, to pick up the phone and actually get people to come into your coalitions. A big difference between that, which is the present, and what we did, which was uh, strengthen our alliances, yes, call on allies to do more. The United States can't share the, uh, can't shoulder the burden alone. Absolutely, that is the case. But you can do so in a manner that still preserves the relationships, deepens the relationships, and ensures that when you go and try to end Iran's nuclear program, you get not only the European allies at the table with you, but also Russia and China for all of the difficulties there. When you go and try to broker uh, an agreement to curb climate change, you go first to China and are actually able to forge that agreement, and then mm -hmm. you take it global and bring other countries on board, and you're able to build a 78-nation coalition uh, to defeat ISIS, which is something that President Trump has carried through, but he couldn't build that coalition today. There's no way after the reckless foreign policy that's been pursued. You built your 
career, you won a Pulitzer Prize, around uh, talking about human rights law, in particular genocide. And you're clear in your book that you morally had some problems with President... And strategically. And strategically, <laughs> but with President Obama's decision not to strike Syria in the wake of those devastating chemical weapons attacks. General Mattis called that the shot not heard around the world. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you resign? Well, first of all, in the book, what I try to do is bring readers into the Situation Room so they see just the complexity of decisions like that one. Um, And when you are in the Situation Room and you're looking at the deaths of 1,400 people and you're seeing refugee flows out of Syria that have the capacity, as they would go on to do, to destabilize countries, not just Syria itself, you see 500,000 lives ultimately taken in Syria, There are a whole set of imperatives that grow out of that. At the same time, the U.S. Congress would not support President Obama Mm -hmm. when he went to them and said, hey, let's do this together. Let's make sure that Assad can't wait us out uh, and just start gassing again, and then we're in a position where where we're divided domestically. So our foreign policy is going to be stronger if we can heal some of these divisions at home. Um, And without that kind of base for acting internationally, especially when it comes to use of military force, I think President Obama, again, I happen to take a different position, but but ultimately it is very hard to be a leader when the rug is being pulled out from you, particularly by the opposition party. But Assad has now essentially won that war. Uh, He has absolutely consolidated control over territory, but it's not the case necessarily when you ask why I didn't resign, and I go into that at length in the book because a lot of people asked me that at the time. People ask that question now about the Trump administration on matters of principle. Why continue to serve and not resign if you object? Well, again, I would would draw distinctions between locking children up in cages and so forth and making, I think, a reasonable decision that U.S. military force alone would not have brought the war to an end. I thought perhaps in the wake of the gas attack we could catalyze diplomacy. It was a limited strike of the kind that I I thought would not lead to entanglement. President Obama agreed. He was pursuing military force. Uh, And again, Congress uh, did not support him in that regard, reflecting, I think, the larger skepticism uh, among the American people. But what I show in the book is how much good you can do from these jobs. And I was really fortunate to be a member of the president's cabinet, to be able to launch a campaign to get female political prisoners out of jail and to actually succeed in getting them out of jail, to be able to build a coalition with President Obama Mm -hmm. and Secretary Kerry to end the Ebola epidemic in West Africa when people had predicted that more than one million people would die. So one, you know, we are divided, as Secretary Rice uh, indicated. The reason I chose to tell a very personal story was to open up just how meaningful this work can be and to show, again, the complexity of decisions and to show that not everything is as binary and I guess it's the sort of gotcha politics that we have today, yeah. that there are good flesh-and-blood people inside government, inside our public institutions generally, who are trying to make the world better and who do, in fact, succeed. You helped shepherd through the Paris Climate Change Accord, which now every Democrat running for president says they're going to rejoin. But you, you also say that's not sufficient to meet the level of threat right now. So what else needs to happen? Well, first and foremost, we have to meet the commitments that we made in the Paris Agreement. I mean, one of the things President Obama did was had us bring the Paris Agreement into law, international law, quicker than any international climate or environmental agreement ever, worried that in case the November 2016 election went a different way, then the agreement itself would collapse. So the agreement still exists globally. But the commitments we made were a floor, and everybody was very clear on that. So we've got to get into it, meet our commitments, and then be much more ambitious in terms of what we do domestically and critically. And this is Mm -hmm. why U.S. leadership is so catalytically important. We leverage the commitments we make, the sacrifices we make, to get other countries to do far more. That's how the global system works when it does. Ambassador, it's a personal memoir. You talk a lot about being a, wor- a working woman and the challenges of, of being pregnant and juggling all that at the same time. To it's which a you good can read. Relate. It, it was a good read. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll be back in a moment with a look at how Americans view climate change. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. 
Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. From CBS Washington, in color, Face the Nation, a spontaneous and unrehearsed news interview. Senator Nelson, Congressman McCloskey, next Wednesday is Earth Day. What are people going to do, though, when they find out that this cleaning up of the environment might involve uh, less use of automobiles by them? Within 25 years, most major metropolitan areas in, in America, if we don't stop it, you will not be able to stay outdoors more than uh, two or three hours without a serious health hazard. You'll have to go out, your kids will go outdoors and play in gas masks. That was the very first time we had an extended conversation about the environment on Face the Nation. Uh, and that dire prediction of children having to wear gas masks while playing outside did not come true. But almost 50 years later, more than six in 10 Americans see climate change as a crisis or serious problem, and more than half say we need to act now. Our CBS News poll out today also shows that just one in 10 Americans say human activity does not contribute at all to climate change. This week, CBS News, along with more than 250 news outlets worldwide, is participating in covering the Climate Now Project. We'll be looking at the challenges and the political discord on what causes climate change and how we can fix it. Our poll also shows that two in three Americans trust their meteorologists for information about climate change. So who better to kick off this special series than CBS's own climate and weather contributor, Jeff Berardelli. Jeff, good to have you here. Good to be here. So uh, part of the political argument around climate change is whether or not man plays a role in it. What does the science tell us? Yeah, so unequivocally, the science believes that it's caused by human beings, by our burning of fossil fuels and our release of these heat-trapping greenhouse gases. Um, 97-plus percent of scientists, there is a consensus, agree that it's caused by humans. These are the scientists that study it day in, day out. It's actually probably closer to around 99% or so. The last five years have been the hottest on Earth. Uh, it is the warmest it's been in modern human history, maybe even going back tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, we are a force of nature. There are 7.6 billion people on this earth right now, and obviously things are changing pretty quickly because of that. And the argument, you have heard even members of the Trump administration say the climate is not definitive. What you're laying out is a very different description. Uh, and in our polling, we're seeing that Americans are willing to do things that they think will help the okay. environment. Recycle, use energy efficient light bulbs, plastic bags at stores. Do those things make a dent in the problem you're describing? So each individual thing we do doesn't. But if we have conversations and society starts to become more sustainable, kind of a grassroots thing where, you know, the low-hanging fruit, you only have to do the little things and those lead to better habits and kind of rub off on the people around you, your, your family, your friends, have the conversations and that starts a grassroots movement from the bottom. At the same time, we need it to come from the top as well. So yes, it does make a difference, not the individual, let's say, plastic bottle that we're not using, but not using a plastic bottle hopefully leads to better habits in your life and in the lives of people around you. We need to become more sustainable with this earth. We have seen some really powerful storms and hurricanes. Mm -hmm. Are those driven by what you're describing with the climate changes? Yes, yeah, so absolutely. That's part of it. So first of all, ocean heat content has been rising and set, sets records every single year. About 93 percent of the excess heat that's trapped by greenhouse gases gets stored in our ocean. Thankfully, otherwise we'd be burning up right now. The problem is, is all that builds up in the ocean and comes back as extreme weather. So first of all, we have hurricane cycles that are natural. And right now we think we're in a natural uptick. These cycles last around 20 to 30 years in the Atlantic Basin. However, on top of that, we've warmed the Earth by around one degree Celsius, about two degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And there's research out there that shows that for every one degree of global warming, uh, we see uh, a disproportionate number of Cat 4s and Cat 5s. It increases mm -hmm. by 25 to 30 percent, the number of Cat 4s and Cat 5s. We see it with 
storms like Irma and Dorian, which just demolished the Bahamas. And, and here's the craziest part of this. Compare a storm with winds of 185 miles an hour to a storm with winds of 75 miles an hour. You might think to yourself, okay, twice as much damage, three times as much damage, four times as much damage. No, it's 1,300 times the damage potential for a storm with winds of 185 like Dorian or a low-end hurricane. That's why just an increase in 20 or 30 miles an hour because of climate change makes a world of difference in terms of damage. So... When we talk about solutions to this, the Paris Climate Change Accord that the Obama administration joined, the Trump administration says it's pulling out of, it locked in or tried to lock in temperature rises uh, at just, what, two degrees Celsius. That you heard from Ambassador Powers say that's not enough yet. But it's something. Right. So why does two degrees make that much of a difference? Okay, so two degrees Celsius is close to four degrees Fahrenheit. It's actually about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. So think about this. You know, it doesn't sound like a lot. A couple of degrees doesn't sound like a lot. But let's say that your body temperature goes up by three or four degrees. The Earth system is just as sensitive as your body. If your body goes up from 99 to 103 degrees, your bodily functions begin to break down. Same thing in the Earth. Same thing in the Earth. Everything is very sensitive. Everything's very interconnected, and things begin to break down. That's what we're concerned about. What's the impact on the economy? It's a huge impact, especially as we head decades forward. Uh, right now, we're already seeing a lot more billion-dollar disasters, so it's already impacting us. But think about this. If the seas rise two, three, four feet, look at all the realist trillions of dollars of real estate is in the way of that. Uh, also, um, it's going to desertify. Climate change will desertify large areas of productive agriculture. So people won't be able to make a living anymore. They will migrate. It forces international migration. Picture the time when instead of 10,000 people kind of knocking at your door, we have 100,000 people mm-hmm. knocking at our door. It causes international instability. What I would right. say is there are things we can do. Renewable energy is something everybody mm-hmm. agrees on, Republicans and Democrats, and so we should move forward fast. Thank you for connecting all those dots for us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Uh, and next week, we will talk with former Secretary of State John Kerry. He negotiated that Paris Climate Change Accord in the Obama administration. That's next Sunday on Face the Nation. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. But before we go, we want to thank the Jones Day Law Firm and everyone behind the scenes at Face the Nation. They've been working nonstop getting us moved in up here. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, California Congressman Adam Schiff, Acting Director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Ken Cuccinelli, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Samantha Power. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.